This is Sacred Tension, the podcast about the spiritual discipline of asking questions and where we try to have compassionate and humane conversations about challenging subjects. My name is Stephen Bradford Long, and this week's episode is brought to you by my patrons, in particular, Annalise, Betty, Vicky, Andy, and Pamela. Thank you so much. I truly could not do this show without you. And for anyone listening to this who wants to join their number, just go to patreon.com forward slash Stephen Bradford Long for a dollar, three dollars, five dollars a month. You get extra content every single week. Also, if you haven't already, please do subscribe to my newsletter. This week, I wrote an article about what I'm calling resilient reading and provided a set of practices to make resilient reading more tenable and, uh, in your day-to-day life, uh, making reading challenging stuff part of your daily practice. So if that's interesting and stuff like that is interesting to you, then please just go to stephenbradfordlong.com and you will find all kinds of interesting content there and you can sign up for my newsletter. Also, if you haven't already, please join my Discord server. I have an incredibly interesting and diverse community there, uh, people from all kinds of religious and philosophical backgrounds, and there is fascinating conversation going on every single day. So links to all of this in the show notes. Now, with all of that boring stuff out of the way, I'm delighted to welcome Richard Reeves to the show. Richard, how are you? I'm good, Stephen. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, so tell us some about who you are and what you do. So I'm a, by day, I'm a Brookings Institution scholar. I'm a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, where I work on issues mostly around inequality, social mobility, family policy and stuff. But as your astute listeners will have probably already figured out, I'm not from these shores originally. I'm from the UK. And in the UK, I worked most recently in the coalition government. I was director of strategy to Nick Clegg, who's deputy prime minister in in the Cameron Clegg coalition. And before that, I'd bounced basically between think tanks, government uh, and academia and some journalism, Um, but basically circling around the public policy space in the UK. And then I transitioned to the US in the end of 2012. I have an American wife. I'm now a proud US citizen, just six years in. I had my anniversary uh, a few days ago. Congratulations. And and you are celebrating by coming on to the Sacred Tension podcast. That's exactly <laughs> it. It's always on my bucket list, Stephen. Uh, and it's like, but well, actually, joking aside, you know, every year I take out the letter that President Obama, who it was at the time, r- writes to it and says, you know, w- welcome to being a new citizen. It says, you will take on the the responsibilities and the rights of being a citizen i encourage you to be actively engaged as a full citizen in your society helping to create make this a more perfect nation and so there's a call in in that citizenship um ritual to to think hard about what it means to be a citizen and to engage respectfully and openly and optimistically with your fellow citizens and to and the admonition is essentially look good countries don't make themselves they have to be. They have to be made, and you're now part of that project. And so I, lo- I love it. I I read it every year um, on on the anniversary, and try in my own work to to live up to some of those calls of what it means to be a citizen of this great republic. Mm, that's amazing. And you're just about to tell us about your three sons before we uh, mm, before yeah. I rudely interrupted you. No, please interrupt. Uh, so yeah, I have three boys, all in their twenties now. So not boys, they're men who I've been very actively engaged in in raising, and they've been raised on both sides of the pond. 
Uh, and I've really learned quite a lot through looking at the world through their eyes. Uh, I think that you know my own generation has has obviously gone through a lot of transition, not least in terms of gender roles and what it means to be a man and what masculinity is and when it's good and when it's bad, etc. And then I think they've actually seen an even more changed world uh, as they've grown up uh, into their 20s. And so it's been a real learning experience for me to just see the world through their eyes. Mm. Yeah. So speaking of of men and boys, you have a new book out called Of Boys and Men. I'm reading it right now. It is fascinating. And let's start with the topic of intersectionality. So you are covering in this book the unique challenges that men and boys face. And just just to provide, you know, my own biases here, lay my own cards on the table. It is obvious to me that men and boys are struggling in some unique ways and that it's important for us societally to talk about that. I work in the food industry. That's my day job. I manage a grocery store in kind of an industrial district here in Appalachia. And I work with a lot of men. And it is obvious to me that a lot of guys are really, really struggling. They express an incredible amount of loneliness to me. The number of men who tell me that they just don't have friends, the number of men who seem to have a really hard time with education, with maintaining close ties, all of that. It's incredibly obvious to me that there's something wrong. It's also really hard to talk about this topic without falling into the the men's rights activist sphere without raising alarms about maybe you're a you're a right-wing chud. So, let's start with intersectionality and how mm-hmm. intersectionality kind of frames your approach to the struggles of men and boys. Yeah. Well, the first thing I'll say is in, is to just respond to what I think you you I correctly identify as the reaction that you get from people just by raising the subject. And it's less it's less what the it's my view is it's less the first thing you say. You might point out that the male suicide rate is three or four times higher than women's and rising. You might point out there's a bigger gender gap in college campuses now than there was when Title IX was passed, but the other way around. They're not it's not so much that first statement. It's the what's the fourth or the fifth thing you're gonna say? Right. Right, where, right, like, right. Where is where is where is he going with this? And the fear is that where you're going with it is you're going to end up in an anti-feminist position. You are going to end up in a, in a zero-sum men's rights position. You are going to start claiming there's a war on men, a war on boys. That the feminazis have taken over and our testosterone levels levels are dropping because the feminists put stuff in the plastic bottles or whatever the fuck it is. Good language. <laughs> uh, but it's like, uh, so, so there's a fear, right? That's where you're going. Right? Maybe, maybe that's yes. the seventh thing you say, not the fifth thing. And so like, you've got to deal with that straight up front and just say, look, it's not zero sum. There are abs and there are absolutely still things to do for women, women and girls. But then in particular, the intersectionality point that you raise is that actually like, it's very, it's very unhelpful in some ways just to look at all boys and men or all girls and women or, all white people or all black people or all people in Appalachia and all people in California. You've really got to look at how those different identities are intersecting in real time and in real space. And what you discover is the working class men, including probably some of the men that you're talking about and black boys and men are really at the sharp end of a lot of social and economic changes. Right. And so the fact that 
most American men earn less today than most American men did in 1979 is a pretty important economic fact that actually as you know, if American men were a nation, it would have gone backwards. That's extraordinary, right? Mm -hmm. And so the stat, the law, it's not just slow wage growth, it's no wage growth across that group. And now at the top, the men at the top, the top 20, 10%, yeah, they've seen wage growth. They're doing pretty well. Meanwhile, the women at the top are doing incredibly well too, such that, for, let me give you one data point, which I think helps to illustrate this, which is that in 1979, only 13% of women earned more than the average man. The, but the average, I should say the median man, right? So the guy in the middle of the male distribution, 13% of women earned more than the typical man, that guy in the middle. Right? Today, 40% of women earn more than the typical man. Yeah. And so that means that actually these, just looking at it through these just single simple binaries just doesn't capture it. Yeah. One more, I promise, one more data point, I pro promise I'll stop being so boring, but like in 1979, black men earned a lot more than white women. Now, white women earn a lot more than black men. For every dollar earned by a white woman, a black man earns 84 cents, hmm. which is almost as big as the overall gender gap. And so, but what black women earn even less, white men even more than white. So, of course, it's complicated, but the point, that, that's the point. It's complicated. Don't, don't make these broad brush statements about men are the patriarchs, women, you know, women, women are still oppressed or whatever. Just say, well, which women, which men? Yeah. Be more specific. So, yeah, we need to be more specific. And for people who aren't familiar, the idea behind intersectionality is that we we exist. Every person exists at the intersections of a multitude of identities. So let's say and, and so yeah. you can actually visualize like a, a traffic intersection and, you know, a let's say a, a black a black gay person, a, a black gay man. Well, he he has the uh, the the black the racism bus coming at him from one direction, <laughs> and then maybe he has the the homophobia bus coming at him from the other direction. And and you know we live in these cross sections, and we all do. We all have a multitude of different identities, and we all exist at the intersection of these different systemic systemic attitudes. I don't know how yes. good of an explanation that is. Right? That's a brilliant. That's a that's a great explanation the only thing i would add to it Stephen, is that in the way that it's typically framed it's like it's very important then you don't presume to know in advance what a, what the kind of multiplication of those identities will mean for someone's position so there's a yeah. there's a misapplication of intersectionality which says white always above black <laughs> men always above women you know straight always above gay etc and so if you're a black gay woman then you're triply disadvantaged kind of by definition right mm -hmm. um and it that's that's not empirically true in all circumstances and then you add class to the mix so it's hugely important to add class to the mix too because actually let's say you're a you know this is a very extreme example but you're a privately educated uh black woman let's say you you know let's say you're the daughter of the nigerian ambassador and you went to sidwell friends school in dc and then you went on to harvard and you identify as as LGBTQ, right? You are a, are you triply disadvantaged? Well, compared to say the guys that you know, a working class white guy in Appalachia. Well, it depends because if you add class, right, to the dimension two, then it's like, well, let's add class, <laughs> right? Because actually, add class to it. So yeah, she's black. 
that means something for sure in a, in a certainly a racist society for sure she's lgbt okay that has implication um and she's a woman and that might be a disadvantage it might be or actually it might not be in the circle she's moving in it's an empirical question but what's absolutely clear is that it makes no sense whatsoever to just presume on the base of those identities that she's worse off than all straight white men because there are plenty of straight white men in fact the majority of straight white men have less power uh, in the world than she does and so you just got it like you basically actually adam you've got me going now but adam gopnik had a <laughs> yes. brilliant a, br a brilliant book and in that um on liberalism and in that he says the problem with intersectionality as applied is it doesn't go far enough and in the end if you just keep intersecting all the way down what you find is the individual hmm. And I think that was brilliantly put, which is that in the end, like the final node upon which like your your analogy of the right intersection, in the end, the only node on which it makes final sense to think about that is the individual. And so it leads you to a respect for the individual. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. And, you know, just to use my own demographic, which is gay men, at a certain level, gay men in our culture are extraordinarily powerful. At a, at a certain level, gay men are one of the wealthiest demographics. <laughs> I mean, gay men can, are, are a cultural force at a certain economic level is what I understand. Maybe I'm completely wrong about that. And, and so I th the, the lesson that I take from intersectionality, I find it incredibly valuable, which is power and disparity is surprising. We can't always predict it based on our preconceived notions. And this kind of brings us to men, where mm. ap applying intersectionality kind of reveals to us that below the upper middle class and the, the highest levels of economic power, men are struggling. So let so just throw mm -hmm. throw some of throw some stats at us throw some stats okay. about the 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 disparities that we're seeing now with in education and family and work. Yeah, so I absolutely agree with everything you've just said, and uh, I think the point about the point about gay men is well made. In fact, there's a recent study which showed that if American gay men were a nation. They would be the most educated nation in the world. Yep, correct. Yep, gay men are <laughs> so, gay men. We are a force to be reckoned with. I am not one of those powerful gay men, but I, um, yeah, gay men. It's a nice as a, description, <laughs> gay, but as an overall group. But again, yes, it's the need exactly. to intersect, right? Look, look at it by, but look at it by class. Look at it, look at it by geography, etc. Yeah, and it is obviously very, very different to be. You know, I'm thinking about when you know, my one of my sons' godfathers are a. a a couple of gay men in the dc area and like they're incredibly powerful like very yep. powerful politically very powerful economically one they're one they're both doctors they worked in white they worked in the white house they're like they're just unbelievably powerful yep. um but they've been part of this journey of course where that wasn't that that was a hard climb uh, and i and i worry that in the current moment we kind of miss we misstate sometimes what the climb was so just to, I've given a few data points just in terms of the differences in college access and the decline in male wages. And again, especially at the bottom of, at bottom of the uh, bottom of the distribution, we've seen falling male wages. But we've seen uh, men account for three or four times as many of what have been called deaths of despair, which are deaths from either suicide, alcohol, or drugs. 
Um, and those numbers have risen by about 50% in the last couple of decades. And we can talk a bit more perhaps about that. Interestingly, you, you mentioned the friendship point too, but there's actually good evidence from Daniel Cox, who's a pollster, showing that the number of men who say they don't have a single close friend has risen from 3% to 15%. Wow! Yeah. In the last couple of decades, and so you're like your your anecdotal evidence is supported by some pretty good empirical evidence now too. So is you know, the so-called friendship recession seems to be disproportionately affecting men um, who are quite strongly dislocated uh, in high schools. You know, girls graduate at much higher rates, but also of those of the highest GPAs, two thirds are girls. Those are the lowest GPAs, two thirds are boys, which obviously is one of the reasons we see that big gap in college. As I mentioned earlier, there's a bigger gender inequality on college campuses today than 50 years ago when Title IX was passed. It's just the other way around. And and the labor market that, I've mentioned stat. that is an insane yeah. stat, by the way. What the the college one is amazing, and it's so interesting to me how like it's it's a very simple stat, right? So to, to put the numbers to it, in 1972 when Title IX was passed. Uh, men were about 13 percentage points more likely than women to get a four-year college degree. Today, women are 15 percentage points more likely than men to get a college degree. So it's reversed. The gender wow. inequality is a bit wider, but it's reversed. And importantly, nobody predicted that. Nobody saw that coming. So in the 70s, when we were working pretty hard to, to get close to gender equity in education, lots of lots of legislation and money and political capital was thrown quite correctly at, at lifting up women and girls. Nobody, nobody said, "Wait, what if the lines keep going? <laughs> what if the mm. what if the girls and women don't just catch up, which is what everyone expected and hoped for? What if they blow right past and keep going?" Um, and that's a situation that's happened. And what that means, by the way, is that we're intellectually and institutionally just we're not equipped for that world. We just we just we don't know what to do with the world. Of, of such a strong gender inequality that runs the other way around to the way that we're used to thinking about gender inequality. So everyone's just a bit like, uh, they don't know what to do with that fact. <laughs> and so mm. we can get into we can get into the things that people do with that fact, but I will just state that it's just a deeply uncomfortable fact for people to deal with, which is one of the reasons why I think it's so important to put it on the table. But um, And for those men who don't get a college degree or actually any kind of post-secondary education, um, so they finished their education with high school, basically. A third of them are now out of the labor are now out of the labor market, uh, and that's ten million. That's that's ten million men. Mm. Uh, that's that's what more than three times the size of the people's the the Red Army, um, and so we have a kind of just this huge reserve army of labor of less uh, less educated men, and those, by the way, are also the men where you see the highest rates of deaths of despair, lower rates of marriage, um, less less mobility of all kinds, and so in those particularly in those kind of working class communities that have been hit hard by deindustrialization, free trade, you've really seen this incredible economic shock uh, to men, which has been combined with this cultural shock of this just huge overtaking in the classroom and increasingly in the labor market of of men by women. Mm, yeah. So I think a question that might come up in response to this from some of my fellow progressives might be, why should we care? Isn't it good mm. that men are being kind of knocked down and women are being elevated? Isn't this right? Why should mm. we care about this? Mm. What is your answer to that? Well, it it depends what it depends which aspect of the problem we're talking about. I think it's a, a perfectly reasonable response and one that I actually, you know, to some extent, I, I share and sympathise with. I think the question becomes like, are are we saying that okay, if women have overtaken men in a bunch of areas, like take education, college education, well, you know, men have had I don't know ten thousand years 
of being ahead. So what's the big deal? And I and I think that's a real test of whether or not what you're really interested in is inequality, um, or whether you're interested in the particular position of one group uh, or another. And so the, the the real question there, I think, is is fe- is feminism an equality movement or a women and girls movement? Uh, and if it is a women and girls movement, then quite right. Like, why should you worry about it? And there are lots of institutions who. Or, organizations who literally whose job it is not to worry about boys and men and to worry about girls and women if it's a relative shift like that then i think the the reason to worry about it is it might suggest that there's something about the system itself that's not really working for one one side or the other and so in just the same way that when you look at say differences by race in educational outcomes you might think maybe that's maybe there's something about the education system that's not serving black kids as well and you go and look and find out that's true. And then what can you do about that? If you see a really big education gap by gender, and especially in the poor communities where it's huge. I mean, in the typical school district, girls are a grade level ahead in English and have caught up in math. In poorer school districts, they're more than that and they're way ahead in math as well. And so you might say, okay, maybe that doesn't matter. Does it Does it matter? Does it matter? Um, and it, it might matter if you think that that's because there's something structural in the system that means it's not working for boys and men. And I I think it is. In the same way, by the way, I think the gender pay gap matters. Still, you know, not take taking on board everything we said about intersectionality, it still matters that just as an economic fact, the median woman has less money than the median man in the labor market, mostly because of parenting, as it turns out now. Does that matter? Yeah, I think it matters. And so what I see is a, an education system that's structured to favor women and girls, but a labor market that's structured to favor men because of differences in child rearing and the solution is to fix both mm, and absolutely. so i think i think it's a false choice i, th- I really do think that if you, you know, if you frame it as like you can only care about one or the other um uh or you only choose to look at one dimension of the problem then i think you're just missing the bigger picture and we have to have the the, the humanity and the, the the grace to look across and say well look there's still some stuff to do here for this group or oh, look how that group is suffering over here or what can we do about that and then just come up with some solutions to those issues so i think it's just wrong empirically and morally to just say by default always and always and forever there cannot be any problems that are specific to boys and men that we should care about i just think that's wrong i mean the data just the data i think just destroys that idea but also just as a moral matter if we care in the end about human flourishing then we should look at where where there appear to be people who are not flourishing. And if some of those turn out to be boys and men, that doesn't mean we should ignore it. Yeah. Also, seeing it can definitely change one's attitude towards it. So where I work is, um, as I said, in an industrial district, there's a rehab very, you know, close by trailer park close by. So it's so it's like we I, I see the 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 devastation of deaths of despair a lot Hmm. and i see the suffering that comes from loneliness and addiction and low income of both you know with with all genders on a near daily basis and you know when you when you see a guy who is at the you know at the end of his life and he's in his 30s or in his 20s because he's a heroin addict or a fentanyl addict. You know, that that just I can't say well good because <laughs> you know, men have been on top for 10,000 years. I I just can't do that. That just strikes me no. as incredibly immoral to me personally. Yeah. You yeah. can't say you can't say to yourself, well, there's one less patriarch. 
Yeah, exactly. Um, there, there's, no, there's I, one less king, one um, less to go. I mean, it's just, I, I, I mean, I, I agree with you, and I think that's actually where people like, where I have a lot of regard actually for people like Jordan Peterson, although I disagree with him about a lot and with his analysis. And so, I mean, he's, he's a psychologist, uh, and so he does tend to individualize these problems. And I think both you and I are talking about more interested in structural problems and solutions. But nonetheless, as a kind of empathetic listening ear. Yeah. to the problems that so many young men are facing. There's a reason why his book sold 5 million copies. There's a reason why he's, he, they have to use sports stadiums for his book tours because he is listening and empathizing and having compassion for precisely the kind of guys that you're talking about in a way that they feel quite rightly that mainstream society very often doesn't. And the other thing I'd say is that because of these huge changes, what what's left is this these these men that you're referring to on a personal basis that are kind of haphazard improvising i my basic view is that because we haven't provided a new positive script for masculinity to replace the old one that basically you know a lot of men are improvising and improvising is incredibly hard if you don't have resources Mm. and if you end up above all not feeling needed that's that's that is literally fatal i i believe that it's one thing we can say with pretty good levels of confidence is that it's a universal human need to be needed and so if you if you start to feel like you're not needed by your employer by the labor market by your children by the mother of your children by your community by your friends if you have friends that there's really kind of like who needs me if you don't have an answer to the question of who needs me then you're in trouble and what that means is that I mean, one of the things interesting about opioid deaths seven at least 70 percent of which are male is that the what the very often the reason why it results in a death is because the person is alone. Mm. You know, they're not out clubbing. They haven't taken MDMA to go out clubbing or cocaine to have a more interesting dinner party. They, they've It's a drug of retreat. And in that sense, really a drug of despair. And I quote in the book some work by Fiona Shand and her colleagues published in the British Medical Journal where they, they captured the last words that men used to describe themselves before they committed suicide or attempted suicide, but most of them were, were suicides. Uh, what words did they use about themselves? And the, the two most commonly used words of self-description before suicide among men were useless and worthless. Mm. And it does seem to me that if you do create a situation in which anybody, regardless, you know, whoever they are, doesn't feel they have use, doesn't feel they have worth, then uh, suicide seems like a kind of rational response, horrific and tragic. But how do we get to a position where we've allowed so many people and men especially to feel that they 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 are of no use and they are of no worth, and and to not see that as a real crisis? Uh, I think it, it honestly shows not just a failure of imagination but a failure of morality. Where does that feeling of worthlessness and use? Well, we've already touched, I think, on some of the points, which is this combination of like an economy that's just become much harder, particularly for less skilled men. I mean, it just is it is just a much harder economy and much harder than it was for the equivalent men a generation ago. So if your benchmark is your father, you you're, you might well be in trouble because you know you only have to go back a few decades when a guy with a high school diploma could probably get a decent living. Um, that's not true anymore. And so, like, if that's your comparison, then you're bound to fall short of it because there's just fewer and fewer jobs that relative you know less educated men are able to do. So the labor market isn't 
crying out in many ways for those skills um, anymore, particularly those obviously manual manufacturing jobs and so on too. And and those jobs they can get may well not pay very well. I mean, you've talked about some of your own experience, some of the men you're talking about, just as just a basic economic problem of really low pay. And that affects women too, of course, but it's really affecting a lot of these men, certainly by comparison to where the previous generation of men could be with equivalent levels of education. You've mentioned the friendlessness thing, which is related, I think, to this detachment. But the biggest the biggest change of all has happened coincidentally with those with some of those trends, which has been just a radical reshaping of the of the family. And so the world where, you know, if nothing else, a man could be reasonably sure he was going to be needed by his wife and kids has, has gone. And it's gone for a good reason, which is the rise of women's economic independence. And um, women, so women, you know, the whole point of the post-war women's movement was to ensure that women did not need a man, um, that she could stand on her own two feet. And that's been a very powerful script for women. It's been very successful. Um, the numbers I quoted earlier suggest how successful that's been. And it's a wonderful, glorious human achievement. But it has had this second round effect of saying, oh, what do we do with the guys? What, what does that mean for the guys? And I think that's a question we haven't taken seriously enough. We haven't updated, modernized our ideas of masculinity, nor have we actually helped the guys to adjust. Instead, if they seem to be struggling with this new world, we just typically blame them and just say you're toxic or misogynist or just get basically get with the program is the message. Um, uh, and that just, I think, to me, understates the just gigantic social and economic and cultural challenges that uh, a lot of men are facing. And again, those with the least economic power are the ones who are struggling the most. Mm. You have this fantastic passage in your book where you write, quote, there is a political stalemate on issues of sex and gender. Both sides have dug into an ideological position that inhibits real change. Progressives refuse to accept that important gender inequalities can run in both directions and quickly label male problems as symptoms of toxic masculinity. Conservatives appear more sensitive to the struggles of boys and men, but only as a justification for turning back the clock and restoring traditional gender roles. The left tells men, be more like your sister. The right says, be more like your father. Neither invocation is helpful. What is needed is a positive vision of masculinity that is compatible with gender equality. As a conscientious objector in the culture wars, I hope to have provided an assessment of the condition of boys and men that can attract broad support. Right. So how do we create that? How do we move beyond these two unhelpful messages from from? <laughs> The left and the right, like like, how do we create a a positive, a, a a positive masculinity for this new age? How does that work? Yeah, well, um, I think the first step is to recognize that it's required. Recognize that it's that it is the challenge that's in front of us, which is to do that. And for the reasons that the passage you just read out identify, that's just a very very difficult at a. Uh, at a kind of at the top level of politics and society right now, because because persuading persuading progressives that this is something they should take seriously is difficult because they think it means giving up on prior commitments to women and girls. That's wrong, in my view, um, and because the right think absolutely we know what we want the old script back, <laughs> which doesn't help either because it's not compatible with the world that we're in now. And so both sides think are understating the extent of the challenge uh, that we face and i'll just i'll give you kind of one 
a topical political example of the, what I find a very frustrating failure on the on the left here, which is that President Biden signed an infrastructure bill, bipartisan infrastructure bill, which will create up to almost a million jobs. And most of those jobs will go to men. 70% of those jobs will go to men, especially working class men. And actually a bit disproportionately Hispanic working class men, because that, because that's where you know working class men are the ones in the industries that will be helped, particularly construction, um, transport, and manufacturing. Um, but the administration wouldn't say that. We only know that because a women's group uh, did some analysis to show that women would miss out on this historic investment. Meanwhile, the cancellation of college debt was described as a gender justice issue because two thirds of the college debt in the US is held by women. And I have no problem with the description of the latter one. It's true, two-thirds of college debts held by women. I have a problem with the policy, but that's for a different day. Um, but it's just striking to me that no one was willing to say that the infrastructure bill would be good for working-class men. They wouldn't mm. say it. And I talk to people you know, you know, reasonably close to the processes about that, and they're just like, well, we just didn't want to piss off any women. And we particularly didn't want to piss off any women's group. Um, and so it's really interesting that it just, that zero-sum framing goes all the way to the top just in terms of political messaging. So even when you do do something that's good for working-class men, you can't say it. So that's the problem, I think, on the left is just this, this blindness, this asymmetry, um, which I think is just, honestly, it just driving a lot of men to the right, especially working-class men. Because at yeah. least on the right, they hear people saying, yes, we get it, boys and men are in trouble. Yep. But then the right makes a mistake of saying, oh, well, it's the left's fault. It's because it's because the left hate hate you. And the left do just enough to make that sound plausible, even though it's not true. They blame feminism, modernity, the progressive left, you know, come destroying masculinity, et cetera. And right, that sounds kind of vaguely like it might be true for a tiny percentage of progressives. Um, and so it sounds good. Uh, and then, you know, here are kind of great example is Josh Hawley, who I quote in the book from a speech, but he has his own book coming out on manhood next year, which is basically, yeah, we need to go back to a world where you can have a single breadwinner, you could raise a family on a single age, and we can bring back manufacturing and bring back marriage. And I listen to him, and I'm like, what are you talking about, Senator? Like, where's this magic wand that you've got that's going to wave all this? And by the way, do you, you don't really want to go back. I mean, his own wife, is a very successful lawyer arguing cases before the Supreme Court and pretty sure he wants his daughters to have the same opportunities as men. And so there's this invocation of the 50s, if they don't say it that way, they're just like, that's not how you're living. It's not how anybody actually wants to live. And you can't bring back manufacturing jobs and marriage with the, with, you know, with the wave of your magic macroeconomic wand. So what are you talking about? And actually what it does is it just it, it just allows a sort of venting, really, of some of these frustrations. It gives it somewhere to go, but it go, doesn't go anywhere very productive. And what I think happens is that real problems faced by a lot of boys and men actually get transformed into grievances in the hands of, of skillful politicians, particularly of the reactionary right. And I think that's led us to some of the situation we're in now, because if that's the choice, if it's a choice between... You turn to the left and you're told you're toxic and it's all your own fault. And you turn to the right and you say, yeah, I've got a script for you. Like, let's be a man again. Well, you know, a lot of people are going to choose the latter because it's it, in the short run, at least it's it feels like it's more they're more, at least they're on your side. But in the long run, it doesn't lead anywhere more successful. We have to recognize the fact that gender equality is here to stay. And we need a script for masculinity that recognizes that. Hmm. What do you think are going to be some some primary uh how do I want to put it? Some primary tenets or or central themes of that that rebuilding of a new message for men. Well, I'm going to start with fatherhood 
because that I mean, is a big theme of the book, and um, and I think it's a really a really fertile place to start the conversation, which is the evidence that fathers really matter to their kids, whether or not they're a breadwinner. In fact, in some ways, even more if they're not, because that means that it's a good chance that it's a low income situation, and the evidence is that actually low income kids benefit even more from an involved father than higher income kids do, and whether or not you're with the mom. Um, you don't have to be married to or even living with a mum to matter. What matters is your relationship with the kids. Uh, and the evidence is very strong now that fathers really do matter, um, not just not so much when the kids are very young, although then too, of course, but when they're adolescents, you know, teenage um, boys, especially boys, but girls too, you really matter. And I'll give you one, one data point on this, which really struck me, is that uh, the mental health of a woman, so this shows it matters to daughters too, the mental health of a woman at the age of 33 is quite strongly predicted by the quality of her relationship with her father at the age of 16. Hmm. That makes perfect intuitive sense to me. You've got to think like if you're a 16 year old girl and you have a good relationship with your dad and he's helping you navigate this new world, et cetera, and he loves you and he's on your side and he's, you know, whatever, and hopefully modeling a kind of way to be in the world. Well, you'll probably go out into the world more resilient and with better mental health. And you, and sure enough, you know, however many years later that is, 17 years later, you actually are you actually are mentally healthy so dads matter and the trouble with so i want to you know equal paid leave much better treatment for unmarried fathers but culturally the message has got to be fatherhood matters the trouble with this again it's a great example of why it's so hard to make progress in this area is the left don't really want to do that because i mean barack obama gave a great speech on father's day in 2008 and never talked about it again (laughs) <laughs> uh, certainly during his presidency because it was just seen as too dangerous and the reason it's seen as too dangerous is to suggest well what does that mean for same-sex couples what does that mean for single mothers <laughs> i was about to bring this up so so i i am 100 with you on kind of the cultural importance of of fathers you know and, and i say that as someone who just had and and still has an amazing father despite our kind of ideological and theological differences. My dad is great and was a huge, huge, huge influence on me. And I think a lot of my general success in life is is because of my dad. Also, a lot of my struggles in life is because of my dad. But isn't that true of everyone? Um, <laughs> yeah. But... But how do we so so how do how do we square this with uh, with gay marriage? So let's say two moms, uh, a lesbian couple who uh, say, you know, have their own children or adopt children and and do their best to provide a, a really stable home is what you're suggesting. Does that mean that that they are kind of at a at a disadvantage? And yeah, what does what does that mean? Hmm. Well, it's I'll just start with some. Just descriptively, it's interesting, first of all, that actually women in same-sex marriages and relationships are much more likely to have children than men, Yep. Um, than gay men. Uh, I don't have the numbers off the top of my head, but I was looking at it recently, and it's just this really, really big difference. So, you know, uh, women in same-sex relationships are a bit less likely to have children in the household than straight women, but only a bit, whereas gay men, very few. Yeah, it's I mean, it's because right. we, it's because we're all man children, and we <laughs> well, just well, and we all just want to party on the yacht. You know, we we put all I that know. money. No, I'm kidding. That's not true. That's a stereotype. Well, it's, but- <laughs> well, 
It's sort um, of true. I did, it's sort of I, true. I mean, maybe not the yacht, but but actually, you know how there's but you get those things on the uh, on the bumper stickers of uh, of people's cars. One of the things I love about America is if I'm sp- stuck behind someone's car in traffic, I can usually learn more about them oh. from all the stickers. <laughs> On the back than yes. than, than I would than I would in about ten years of friendship in the UK. Sure, um, and so you know where the kids went to college, where they went to college, what what their politics are, what their theology is, what church they're in. You know, it's a you just basically it's, I, I I feel I feel like I'm virtually friends with them after reading all the stickers. But what? one of my favorite stickers is is um you know you get the ones of families. There's one which is you may have seen, and it's just two guys holding hands, um and then and then a massive bag of money. Yes. Next to them. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. No, I, so <laughs> I, I was, that. I was talking to a, to a really good friend of mine and he, he said, and he's straight and, uh, but he said that the best financial advice that his father ever gave him was live like the gays. <laughs> don't <That's> have so <laughs> the best so financial natural. advice he ever got from his, from his father was live like the gays. Don't have children. <laughs> Well, it's so it's so true, so true. I have like three, like three of you know. I call my sons the, the cost centers, and um, I will come back to your original question. But but I, I remember there was a period in London where we had, I guess we had two, two. I can't remember. I think we had all three kids, but all very young. You know, we were quite close together in age. We were living in this top this apartment, um, and it was like you know, we were exhausted and you know sleep deprived and you know trying to pay the bills and all that and. Yeah. Up on the opposite side of the road, there was an apartment opposite us, and there were two guys who we knew a little bit, uh, a gay couple, and we could we could see straight into their apartment, and it was beautifully furnished. <laughs> um, they had a fabulous coffee machine that I've now find. It took me years to be able to afford a coffee machine. It was a Jura coffee machine. They had a great coffee machine, great soft furnishings. You know, again, whole stereotype. Mm-hmm. And I would be up in the morning at I don't know. 4 a.m. or whatever with one of the kids and then 5 a.m. with the kid. And I'd be in our, you know, in our relatively dilapidated apartment. And I'd look across and at about 10 a.m. This is weekends, but about 10 a.m. they might get up, you know, <laughs> stretch, go and have a coffee. Yes. I could see them getting I could see them getting the paper out and lying down on the sofa for a bit. You know, they'd get the paper and then they might go for brunch and then go back and and then you know have a nap and then and I, I and it became a thing with my wife and I where we just we would just look across and say we want to be them we want their life <laughs> we want the gay we want the gay life we want the gay how can we be can we can we have the gay lifestyle but still have kids and the answer is no that's the thing about the gay lifestyle is as soon as you have kids it's over <laughs> well it's the childless lifestyle also really. also I you know talking about the differences between gay men and lesbians. This is this might be offensive. I don't know. I don't know what's offensive anymore. So I'm just going to say. Okay. It. So I was listening I'll to. Tell I'll, I'll tell you. I'll tell you. A thing. <laughs> okay. Or my Discord will tell me. They, my Discord is always very sweet in mm. in communicating when I cross a line. But okay. I was listening to Andrew Sullivan, who's you know of course a, a an iconic gay activist, and uh, has done a lot of work for gay marriage in the United States. But he talks about the differences between the and the cultural differences between lesbians and gay men and he says that in his town you know he'll he'll get up at at 4 a.m or 5 a.m and make a cup of coffee and go out onto his front porch i forget which podcast episode this was where he said this but he so so he'll go out onto his porch and drink some coffee and he's in kind of this gay neighborhood and he will watch you know the lesbian couples out walking their dogs you know, out walking their mm-hmm. their poodles <laughs> and their golden retrievers, and then he will see the gay men 
straggling home hung over from a hookup. <laughs> and it's like, if there's ever, or, or you know, straggling home from a party at a gay bar or, or whatever. And he was like, if there's ever an image of the difference between gay culture and lesbian culture, it is that. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I've, I heard that same. Actually, I did a, I did a podcast episode with him on on the on the book, and we uh, we actually talked a little bit about differences between between men and women when it comes to sex, when sure. it comes to how driven we are by sex. And again, you know, the obligatory you know, public health warning: the distributions overlap. You can't generalize, but my God, the distributions in terms of how driven we are by sex between men and women are very different. And as he also correctly points out, and others have pointed out the same thing, is the fact that we now have rel- relatively free um, opportunities for uh, gay men and lesbian women to kind of live lives closer to their own, you know, by their own lights. It's the best possible evidence you could have for yes. the differences that yes, men, it is. Have, men and women have. It's really just like, so if I get into arguments where, where people say, I know I don't agree with the statement that biologically there are differences between men and women in terms of how they, you know, in terms of how they think about sex and what sex means to them. And I'm like, can I respectfully request that you go and spend the next six months hanging out in some gay bars? Uh, and then in some lesbian, I was going to say lesbian bars, but there aren't any left anymore. Are they? I said lesbian dog parks. Give me what <laughs> you just said. Don't just go and go and hang out. Yes, go and correct. Hang out, right? Correct. Of, and then and then and then let's have this discussion again about whether or not men and women are really, on average, different. But yeah, yeah. Actually, the dog thing leads us nicely to this point about the fact that lesbians are more likely to have our kids. And so I have to tell you anecdotally. My experience of uh, women who have children, and I know in same-sex couples, same, usually married, who have kids, is that they are very acutely aware, the, particularly if they have sons, but just more generally acutely aware of the need to have very strong male figures in their kids' lives. They could be uncles, you know, they could be gay friends, they could be godfathers, etc. But I find most lesbian women in that situation to be very intentional about creating what you might call social fathers. That's the sort of sociological term for it, which is you know, men who do play a, a very important quasi-parenting role in those kids' lives, even if they're not actually the father. And so that there's lots of different ways to get at this, but I've seen that as quite good anecdotal evidence that actually, you know, even very, very progressive. So I can think of a couple in particular, incredibly progressive liberal feminist couple who've had two kids and They've worked very hard to make sure that the, those kids have very strong relationships with men, hmm. and that te- again, that's quite interesting. Revealed preference. So what that tells us is it's true that fathers matter. It's just that in in the you know the, the households where there isn't a biological father present, you sometimes have to do something different. But I see that not as evidence that fathers don't matter, but quite the opposite. Hmm. Um, that they really do. And I don't think you find very many, you don't find that many lesbian couples who will say the world would be better if their kids grew up without strong, without strong male role models in their lives. Usually they're actually, usually they're the ones who are most strongly seeking it out. Now I'm happy to be disproved on that point, but I, but I will also tell you that for all the literature just shows that, you know, dads in different shapes and sizes, but usually the biological dad, dads matter. And the problem is that the left, for the reasons we just got into, partly deny that they're worried what it'll say about single parents, right? Does it say that single parents have failed in some way? And again, most single parents will not take it that way. But the danger otherwise is that you say that the dads have failed because they're not with mum anymore. 
right? You, you literally you bench the dads if you insist that they have to be with the mom to be good dads. What matters is the relationship. Meanwhile, on the right, obsessed with marriage, missing the fact that most kids born to non-college educated Americans now are born outside marriage. It's the majority of kids to non-college educated Americans, most, right? 40% overall, but most. Um, 70% are black kids born outside marriage. And so this like this is this idea that you can somehow like go back again, or that marriage is the institution we need to rest this particular thing on. It's not that marriage shouldn't be available to everybody. It should, but but it seems to me that it's getting it the wrong way around. If we care, why do the, why do we care about marriage? Well, lots of reasons, but one of the main reasons is because it's a good way to parent together. But uh, well, in that case, let's start with the parenting. And let's really emphasize fatherhood. There are other things too uh, around this more positive script for masculinity, which I would include things like physicality. It's okay that the boys and men are on average a bit more physical. In fact, not okay, but it's inevitable. And so you build that into education system. Uh, we've talked about sex drive already. Like, let's not pathologize male sex drive. Yeah. Um, I think that's a, that's a danger, specifically for straight men, actually. It seems like gay men, at least for now, are still getting a bit of a pass in terms of it's okay if you, you know, it's okay for gay men to be horny, let's put it bluntly. Yep. Um, is it okay for straight men to be horny? Well, <laughs> that's become a bit, a little bit of a question. Um, and so I think addressing that responsibly would lead you to things like educating boys around porn, et cetera, as well as the stuff around respect for relationships with women. But let's not let's not pretend for a moment that sex isn't different for boys. And let's not pathologize that. Let's actually celebrate that. You know, it's good. It's good. It's good that they it's good to have a strong sex drive. It's a sign that you're healthy, actually. So that's good. And, and there's more to say, but the last thing I'd say is actually courage. Physical courage, but courage of other kinds. That is more of a quotes masculine trait. It's not restricted to men, of course. But terms certainly in terms of physical courage, um, there is clearly some gender difference there. And again, we should really be really be celebrating it. Um, I learned from Carol Hooven's book about testosterone that there are these things called the Carnegie Hero Awards, which I mentioned in the book, which are civilian medals that go to people who have risked their own lives to save the lives of another, not as part of their job and not for a member of their own family. So basically, you know, will you risk your life or in many cases give your life to save a stranger? And they have tried so hard to get more gender balance in that. It's still 95% men. A fifteen-year-old yeah. boy runs into a burning building, saves a mother and her young child, dies himself. Seventeen-year-old boy dives into a river, saves a family, drowns himself. Again and again, it's like, and they're almost all men, and that's a wonderful thing. But almost no one knows about those awards, and or even the foundation that runs them is a little bit shy, I would say, of celebrating them because they're really worried about saying there's something different and better about men. Well, in this case, I'm going to say it: there is something different and better about men in that particular instance. So. Do you have a, a uh, it's it's one oh two now, but do you have a few minutes to answer one more question? Yeah, yeah, um, I can do one more. Yeah. So I want to talk about porn and ask you about porn. So there mm -hmm. is out. Uh, so I, I live in some very, you know, lefty online spaces and a lot of my friends are sex workers a lot of my friends are porn stars and in general i don't have a, a problem with porn i watch porn i think it's fine but a lot of people i know in meat space even progressive people do a lot of hand wringing about porn and and internet porn and the effect that porn is having on 
men and boys in particular. It's really hard for me to get a sense of what the data says about this because it it seems like so much of the data is religiously motivated, right? Like a, a mm. lot of the data seems to come out of Mormon institutions that seem to have a vested interest in just abolishing porn completely. So I want to get your perspective on porn and and men and boys and how destructive or not it is. Yeah. Uh, well, I'll say up front that there is there is a chapter of the book that's not in the book, <laughs> which is which is the chapter on sex. Okay. Um. So that's sitting you know next to me now on the on the on the floor on literally on the cutting room floor of my of my study. Um. And the reason it was taken out was because of the very wise advice I got, which is that if you talk about sex, no one is going to care about your ideas about education reform. Uh, no one's going to ask you about your ideas for a thousand new technical high schools if you've got stuff in there about sex. Uh, and it turns out that actually not that many people are interested in my ideas for technical high schools anyway. And, so, mm -hmm. and they are interested because sex is naturally interesting, but also because it's not, it was didn't fall so much so clearly into the policy space. So with that preamble out of the way, I have thought, and there's a way of saying I actually did look quite hard at the literature on this and i say a bit about it in the book but not much my my instincts uh, and my view having looked at the evidence is now exactly the same as yours the overwhelming body of research on porn uh suffers from the fatal bias of who's doing it and for what ends so the reasons you say there is almost nobody being funded to research porn to show that it's harmless or even beneficial nobody yeah um and so that bias is a very good actually the uk children's commissioner did a great report on this that said that they just said look we just don't know uh and and but for what it's worth i just i don't see the evidence for huge harm for the majority of people most and it's men of course mostly men they tend to go on you know two or three times a week not usually for very long if they're in a relationship they're much less likely to uh use porn to masturbation than if they uh than if they're not in a relationship etc uh, and look, I'll say, I'll say, then there's two caveats. The caveats are one is going to be a small proportion for whom it becomes really addictive and all consuming. Yeah. Um, and that's a, like, like gambling addiction or any, any kind of addiction, you know, addictive addictions are a problem. Does porn have the potential to become addictive? Absolutely. So I think that's part of what porn education needs to be about. So that has that problem. And then secondly, and similarly, I think some of these other areas, it's more about the displacement effects that, I, that concern me. It's more about whether porn is something you're doing instead of something else that might on balance be better, like going out, trying to ask someone out or doing something else and developing those social skills in real life. And so if it becomes a substitute for developing some of those skills in real life, then I think it's not a problem in and of itself. The problem lies in what you're not doing when you are looking at porn. Does that does that make sense? The yeah. displacement effect? Yeah, that makes complete sense. And I mean, it's so funny. I was listening to your interview on Barry Weiss's podcast. It wasn't Barry Weiss interviewing you as some some conservative lady. And she was just yeah. Yeah. M M M M MK. Yeah. 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 She actually came back to it at the end as well. She wanted to do more on it. Yeah. Yeah. She she just seemed aghast at <laughs> what you were saying about porn. And well, every, everyone's prior is that it's bad. Yeah. And I mean, I, that's pretty much everyone's prior. That's amazing. And I just don't, I just, okay. And again, this might be because I'm gay, but I, gay culture, I feel like has a very positive relationship with porn. And porn is, is kind of 
integrated into on you know in my personal anecdotal experience gay porn is just kind of integrated into our world in a way that i don't think is true for for other people and i yes. see but, but and there's also this danger there's sort of the quote subjectification the power relationship thing right sure. it's like this that, that if it's straight if it's men quote subjectifying women seeing women as lesser than etc that's different arguably to a situation where it's kind of gay men looking at gay porn where it's male male yeah there wouldn't be this fear about the power relationship yeah that's right uh, also i will say that i feel like just anecdotally gay porn in terms of its content seems different to me from straight porn gay porn there it, it's there seems to be more more joy in it more pleasure in it more intimacy hmm. more affection more kissing versus a lot of the straight porn i've seen and i don't know why that is and i don't know if that's even true but there does seem to be something different there and you know i talked to a lot of guys both gay and straight i i've talked to a number of guys who tell me that they feel like porn has just completely taken over their lives. And for them, it has become a compulsion. And in that case, I'm mm -hmm. like, yeah, absolutely. You know, reduce your consumption. Here, here are maybe some ways to help you do that. And, uh, you know, if well, yeah. yeah, and take a break, probably. I mean, there's actually a very good book, Your Brain on Porn. Um, mm. That is, I think, aimed. I think it's probably maybe even aimed a bit more adolescents or younger men. I don't, I don't. But it just goes through all these issues, these dangers. And actually, I think there's some pretty good evidence that you actually you need to take a dopamine fast from any kind of dopamine related addiction. You actually have to completely fast um, for a while to just because because you have to rewire a little bit. Like your brain circuitry has just gotten like wired into this dopamine hit needs it again you get the drop you then get the massive drop afterwards so then you have to get another hit i mean that's the pattern of addictive behavior this dopamine related generally and porn is a great example of a kind of dopamine related addiction so i would say it's not just it, like if you're really in that situation it's not just that you probably have to reduce your consumption for a while you've actually got to go cold turkey mm, um mm -hmm. for probably a month i think is what people will say um uh, and then maybe think about like is it is it something that you can learn to do in moderation or is it just like a like a no-go area um, for me. I mean, I, in, in my own, my, it's very personal, but my own experience around something like alcohol, for example, I just, when I turned 50, I'm 53 and I just stopped drinking and one altogether. And one of the reasons for that is it's just, it just, the struggle to be moderate about it was just not worth it, right? Mm. Uh, even even when I was winning the struggle, so much was going into the struggle to, to be kind of a, to moderate my alcohol consumption um that it was just like i was always going against the grain like the risk was always there like this kind of very strong addictive grain mm. um was always there and so for me in the end i just it wasn't just cold turkey for a while but it's just like okay that's just it's just not worth the fight i will say about the other thing about porn and why i think there's this kind of negative prior about it specifically about straight porn it's interesting what you say about gay porn being more relational and i wonder if that's true it might be i wonder also if for it to be credible for it to feel real you want to make sure that it's um that it has that kind of relational aspect to it i'm completely making this up now whereas maybe in straight porn it's just my kind of more presumed right of course sure. yeah of course i have no idea yeah of course she's going to want to have sex with you whereas maybe in gay porn you have to establish first of all that there is that you know shared desire i don't know but i say that here's what i really think about 
why there's this moral panic about porn. And, you know, it's actually a public health emergency in seven U.S. states or something. I've got the number somewhere, but m- maybe more than that, 13 and, U.S. states. And not or, actually, but it's been declared such. Yes, sorry. Yeah, yeah. I yeah, should yeah, have yeah. said that. It's been declared such, but it's not actually at all. No, thank you for that correction. But it's been <laughs> declared by the... They're all Republican states, but right, but here's what I think is actually going on. I think that... And it made, I thought about this whenever you see someone being kind of caught in like uh, like the Jeffrey Tubin thing, the New Yorker writer who was famously caught masturbating uh, during a, a Zoom call or in a break from a Zoom call. And, and, and I think one of the reasons you get that reaction to him, but also to porn, is that it reveals in really stark and vivid ways what men are like when it comes to sex. Mm. I think for a lot of women, especially, the fact, the idea that you could just, you know, take five minutes out from your workday, lock onto Pornhub, maybe masturbate, probably masturbate, maybe not, but masturbate, and then and then go back to the spreadsheets you were working on or whatever <laughs> it is, or, or or in the old days, go to the toilet. They find that just incomprehensible and a bit disgusting, hmm. right? Because that's very different to female sexuality on average. And so, what I think porn does in some ways is it just really shines a light on an aspect of male sexuality um, that a lot of people just don't like. And I think well, a lot of women don't like it, but I also think a lot of conservatives don't like it generally. It's just, it's a fact about male sexuality that is uncomfortable hmm. um, and porn and porn makes it quite uh, visceral, quite, quite visible, but th- that you can't wish it away. It had, takes on then here we are a bit theological. For me, sometimes it takes on some of the feel of like original sin, right? It's quite akin to those Puritan ideas. Like there's something kind of defective at the heart of each one of us. And part of that is this sexuality. Part of that is this in some ways non-relational sexuality that that men seem to have more than women. And so I do think that's one of the reasons why it's seen as either yucky or defective or or whatever. Mm. And I think it's not necessarily those things. I think it just is. And the question is like, what do you do about it? Um, but I, I've been, it's interesting to me, I've been really surprised by the almost universal hostility I have faced with my huh. message on this. I yeah. mean, like just no one wants to hear, nobody wants to hear that porn's okay. No, it, with the exceptions we've given. And no, no, no one does. Almost, almost no one wants to hear that um, with, huh. with rare exceptions. And I think it's because of all these priors we bring to it, which again, back to where we started is because of this danger overall of just not getting masculinity and seeing that like all kinds of somewhat biological, somewhat socialized identities, there's good and bad here. And the question is, how do we make the best of the good and minimize the bad? And I think, you know, porn is just a great example of that broader problem we have of just coming to terms with the reality of men mm. and uh, and back to and the reality that many men now are struggling in some ways. And I think honestly, last thing this is like porn, can be an escape but the yeah. question then is why are, why are we trying to escape what are we escaping from and maybe yeah. that's where we should start the conversation absolutely in conclusion i'll be happy to say uh my podcast and my audience will will enthusiastically embrace your your uh non-judgmental approach to porn <laughs> um i so hopefully that will be a refreshing experience for you anyway um <laughs> well thank you <laughs> always i i you know as always with with conversations like this i have so many more questions and i feel like there's there's much more conversation 
to be had about this. But thank you so much for your time. I so appreciate it. Thank you, Stephen. Great conversation. And uh, for people who want to find your work, where can they do that? Well, it's Richard V. Reeves. The V is very important because it's there on my Twitter handle, Richard V. Reeves. That's my website address is Richard V. Reeves. Uh, I'm obviously at the, over at the Brookings website. Um, and I also have a new Substack, which is called Of Boys and Men. So if you Google that, you will find that. Perfect. And everyone should go buy your book of Boys and Men. It is excellent. Thank um, you. All right. Well, that is it for this show. The music is by Eleventy Seven. The theme song is Wild. You can find it on Apple Music, Spotify, or wherever you listen to music. The show is written, produced, and edited by me, Stephen Bradford Long, and it is supported by my patrons at patreon.com forward slash Stephen Bradford Long. As always, hail Satan, and thanks for listening. 